Oh, Father, as we come to Your Word today, we thank You that Your Word is a light unto our path and a lamp to our feet. We thank You that Your Word is sufficient. We thank You that Your Word is inerrant, inspired, infallible, that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that we, Your people, may be equipped for every good work. And so we ask, O Lord, that by the power of Your Spirit working in us and giving us understanding of Your Word, we pray that You would accomplish these purposes in us. We pray that as we humbly submit to Your Word, You would make us more and more like Christ. Of course, we pray this for our children as well. Children who are both inside the womb and outside the womb. We remember that they were a gift from You. And we pray, O Lord, that You would raise them up to believe in in Christ and to be powerful, powerful soldiers of Christ in this dark world. We pray for a generation to rise up among our children who would love You and serve You through Christ Jesus. O Father, we know that You can do it. We know that where we fall short, You You are more than sufficient. And so we ask, O Lord, that You would use this time to glorify Christ. Give us an understanding of Your Word. Give us a deeper understanding of ourselves and our need for Christ, that He may be exalted during this time. It's in His name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel of John. If you need a a, a Bible, we have several Bibles out on the counter in the foyer. Please feel free to pick one up. Please feel free to take one if you don't already have one. Uh, Those are uh, for the taking, or you can just borrow it and uh, whatever you choose to do with it. That's between you and the Lord. But today we are going to be in John chapter 13. We're in John chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at verses 36 to 38. Uh, John chapter 13, verses 36 to 38. This is such an important uh, passage. It's so short, but there is so much to glean from these passages. It's about Peter and his pending denial of Jesus, and what we can learn from that, what Peter needed to learn from that. But it started for Peter, the same place it starts with us. It starts with some self-awareness. How well do you know yourself? Know thyself is kind of the old proverb or the old adage that referred to what we would call today uh, self-awareness. That's what we refer to it today as. Uh, Self-awareness basically just involves knowing yourself, knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses, knowing your biases, knowing your tendencies and your temptations and so on and so forth. And there are times when You know, we might joke about somebody who seems to have very little self-awareness. In fact, if you were to look on social media for uh, for gifts that deal with somebody lacking self-awareness, you'll find some really good ones uh, that are used to indicate that a person who has posted something on social media just 
apparently has no self-awareness, or at least a very low level of self-awareness. For example, we would say that a man who has a really bad temper, who gets angry really quick uh, with people who disagree with him, would be lacking in self-awareness if he were to post something about how gracious we all need to be with those who disagree with us. Or we would say that a woman who dresses very immodestly is lacking self-awareness if she starts complaining about other women dressing immodestly. So hopefully you get the point. You get the gist or the essence of this concept because this is a really, really important concept for us to understand. This isn't just like some recent phenomenon or a recent thing that psychologists and counselors and psychiatrists have come up with. No, this is something we see stories of people with low levels of self-awareness in Scripture. And we're supposed to notice the low level of their self-awareness. For example, David. David, at times, lacked self-awareness. When he committed his sin with Bathsheba and against her husband by murdering him, David would be stunned to be told a parable about two men, a rich man who has many sheep and a poor man who has only one sheep, and how the rich man steals the one sheep of the poor man. And David says, this guy deserves to die. Revealing that he has like no self-awareness because it's not until the prophet Nathan says to him, you are the man, that David has any clue that the parable was really all about him and what he had done. But Peter is also a very vivid, a wonderful case study of someone whose levels of self-awareness would often reach critically low levels, almost if not entirely at level zero. And the passage that we come to today would serve as the single clearest example of Peter having little to no self-awareness. Every single one of the Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Every single one of them reveal that Peter was a very brash guy. He was very mouthy uh, when he walked with Christ. He often spoke before he thought, something that a lot of us can probably relate to. He was slow to listen and quick to speak when he should have been slow to speak and quick to listen. Often revealing incredible and sometimes almost laughable folly. He would have been a really strong person, kind of a, a big, bar, uh, uh, big um, buff guy, you know, very strong, very muscular. He spent years hauling in uh, fish from uh, the Sea of Galilee, nets full of fish, a profession that requires and builds incredible upper body strength. And so with all that said, Peter, if we were to say a few things about him at this point in his life, he was very confident. He was very bold. He was very brash. He was very courageous. One thing that he was not filled with, we must confess, was self-awareness. And this would cause him to sometimes make very, very foolish mistakes. Mistakes like interrupting Jesus when Jesus was in the middle of saying something important. Now, as we consider the context of the passage that we'll be looking at today, Let's remember what's happened in this chapter. Jesus has just dismissed Judas, 
Iscariot from the event that we would refer to as the Last Supper. Uh, Judas had set in his heart to betray Jesus, and Jesus identified to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that Judas Iscariot would be the one to betray him by handing him a morsel that had been dipped in wine. But sadly, Judas would not be the only one to turn on Jesus, to betray Jesus. To one extent or another, all the disciples would turn on Jesus. They would abandon him when he's arrested, when he's tried by Pontius Pilate and sent to be crucified. But Peter would be different than the ones who just scattered. Peter wouldn't only abandon Jesus. He would also deny Jesus. And not just once, but three times. And that's what Jesus will prophesy in our passage today. Now, if, if you were to read and study Peter's epistles, First and Second Peter, you'd think, you know, it's hard to believe that it's the same guy. That this is the same disciple that we read about back in the four gospel accounts. But what we see in Peter's life by comparing who he is in the gospel accounts with who he is in his epistles, is that by the time he's older and he writes his epistles, he's gained very, very high levels of self-awareness. Indeed, he has been humbled greatly. What Peter needed to learn between that time in between the gospels and writing first and second Peter, what he needed to learn is what we need to learn, which is the point of this passage. In the words of Puritan author William Grinnell, the Christian's strength lies in the Lord, not in himself. The Christian's strength lies in the Lord and not in himself. How desperately Peter needed to learn that lesson and how faithful and true Jesus was to ensure that he did. And it's a lesson, friends, that you and I must learn as well. The Christian's strength lies in the Lord, not in himself. Richard Phillips notes in his commentary on John that, quote, those who teach the Bible find that many people are more interested of, uh, in matters of curiosity or controversy than in the straightforward message of God's Word, end quote. Other commentators noted this. Uh, one commentator said, quote, Speculation about prophetic predictions seems much more exciting than just living a quiet, upright life, ordinary day after ordinary day. End quote. This certainly seems to have been the case with Peter, who upon being told by Jesus that where he was going, the disciples could not come, Peter takes this as an opportunity to interject his own thoughts and his own feelings on the matter by interrupting Jesus. Peter was more interested in what he thought that he was capable of doing for Jesus than he was in what Jesus had to do for him. Just like earlier in the evening when Jesus came to wash Peter's feet and Peter tried to turn Jesus away. Our passage is short, just three verses, but it's an important passage. And I'm confident that we will glean many, many important lessons and insights from looking at this passage. But the most important lesson is, once again, that we understand 
that the Christian's strength lies in the Lord, not in himself. We must therefore humble ourselves and put our confidence entirely in Christ rather than in ourselves. So having just instructed the disciples that where he's going, the disciples cannot come, followed by telling them that he has given them a new commandment, that they love one another even as he has loved them, Jesus is now interrupted by Peter. Verses 36 to 38. Let's look at the passage now. We read this. John tells us, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. You can sense the irony and the seriousness in Jesus' voice as he rebukes Peter for trying to rebuke him. It's important for us to see that while Peter and Judas Iscariot have a lot of similarities, uh, their differences actually are more significant than their similarities are. Let's start by looking at some of their similarities. We could start by saying that we know that both of them uh, have behaved really foolishly in this chapter at this point. Uh, no question about that. Uh, Peter tried to uh, deny Jesus the opportunity to wash his feet. Now he's saying, uh, Jesus, you don't need to go anywhere without me, uh, while Judas set in his heart to betray Jesus. They were both very foolish in this chapter. We also know that both of these men have followed Jesus for, uh, give or take, three years Uh, during which time they have heard Jesus preach often. Uh, At at least once a week, I would imagine. I'm sure it's much, much, much more than that. But they would hear Him preach frequently, and they would not only hear Him preach, but they would also see Him confirm His message or validate His message by performing miracles. They saw Him do things that the laws of physics cannot explain. Uh, like feeding uh, 5,000 families out of nothing, out of, out of two fish and, and five small barley loaves. They've seen one incredible miracle after another, both Peter and Judas. Uh, they were both sent out by Jesus in twos to preach the gospel. And they were temporarily given power to perform miracles, which would serve once again to validate the veracity of their message. They've both repeatedly witnessed the incredible, unparalleled wisdom of Jesus. And they've both repeatedly been exposed to the love and the mercy and the compassion that Jesus had for the lost. And yet, both of them, in spite of these three years, and all that you would think that they would have learned in these three years, both of them would fail Jesus in his final hour. We were told back in verse 21 that Jesus was troubled in his spirit, which was unquestionably connected to the impending betrayal that Jesus would face by Judas Iscariot. But is it also at least possible that Jesus was troubled in his spirit because he knew what was going on with Peter as well? Did he also know that Peter was going to deny him in his final hour? 
It's possible. We don't know for sure, but it's possible. But the fact that both of these men would fail Jesus in his final hour after following him closely for three whole years, the fact that both of these men would fail Jesus in his final hour reveals to us that not a single one of us is immune from trials in which our faith will be revealed to be frail and weak. Indeed, when it may seem as though our faith has failed altogether. And so let us never be so foolish as to think, I would never do what Peter and Judas did. I would never fail Jesus the way that Peter did here. The lesson that Peter's failure provides is applicable to any and every Christian throughout church history. And that is that the flesh is so, so weak, so unreliable, so unpredictable, so gullible. The flesh is so weak. But our inclination, our temptation is always to put our confidence in the flesh, despite the fact that it's so weak. Despite the fact that it's so frail and unpredictable, the nature of man is prideful through and through by nature. That's just who we are. And that's something that we can't help but see whenever Peter is involved in a story throughout the Gospel accounts, is that the flesh is so weak. And pride often gets the best of us. And yet, while Peter and Judas had all these similarities, so much in common, their differences were fewer, but far, far, far more significant than their similarities. I think it's safe to say that we can start uh, with the fact that one of them, Simon Peter, was a true disciple, while the other, Judas Iscariot, was not. He was not a true disciple. He never was a true disciple. Peter truly loved Jesus, And Judas never did. And that's seen in the way that they react to their sin that we see in this chapter. When Peter is faced with the the frailty of his faith and the greatness of his sin, what does he do? What does he do? Luke tells us what he does. He wept bitter tears of repentance. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22, verses 61 and 62, what happened after the third time Peter denied Jesus. He writes this, he says, The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. That's Peter's response to realizing the enormity of his sin. Judas, on the other hand, when faced with the greatness of his sin, didn't repent. Rather, he just took his own life. Jesus never sought Judas out, but Jesus Jesus did seek Peter. We'll read at the end of John's Gospel how Peter, James, and John would be out fishing. It's like they've gone back to their life before Jesus because they haven't seen him resurrected yet. And, and while they're out fishing, they have caught nothing. And, but from the shore, Jesus tells them to cast their nets on the other side. And upon realizing that it was Jesus giving them this instruction, do you remember what Peter does? He just jumps into the water and swims to shore. He he, he can't wait to get to Jesus. He can't wait 
to be face-to-face with Jesus again. That's a picture of a guy who is earnest in his repentance and in his desire to be reconciled to the Lord. Ultimately, what we must understand is that Judas never loved Jesus. He never believed in Jesus while Peter did. Judas pretended to have faith. He, he walked the walk, so to speak, but only on the surface, only on the outside. On the inside, he kept his heart far from God. And Peter, I mean, did Peter ever pretend to do anything? Sometimes we, we kind of wish that Peter would have had the wisdom to pretend something, but Peter never pretended anything, including having faith in Jesus. He did have faith in Jesus. Peter just thought too highly of his faith. Peter just thought he was stronger in his faith and more bold and courageous than he really was. And so when Peter sinned, Jesus was faithful to restore him. But when Judas Iscariot sinned, he had nothing. And he had nobody to turn to. Nobody to console him. Nobody to restore him. So the first lesson we learn from Peter, therefore, is that like Peter... We must have Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We must believe in Him savingly. We must love Him. We must have Him as our Lord and Savior. Left to ourselves, our faith will fail. Left to ourselves, sin will dominate us. Left to ourselves, sin will always get the best of us. Left to ourselves, we will have nothing to hold to, nothing to cling to. Left to ourselves, we're just standing on sinking sand. Without Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we cannot be reconciled to God. Peter was probably not as smart as Judas was. Peter was probably not as wealthy as Judas was. But Peter had Jesus. And in Jesus, Peter had all the benefits and all the blessings of being a child of God by adoption. And thus he had every privilege in the world over Judas Iscariot. Friends, you and I too must have Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And it must come the same way it came for Peter, by loving Jesus and by believing in Jesus. We must have Him. Without Him, we are nothing. And apart from Him, He assures us in chapter 15 that we can do nothing that is pleasing to God. Absolutely nothing. And that is a terrifying thought. That you can have two people, Peter and Judas, for example, doing many of the exact same things, and yet one of them is pleasing to God, while the other one is offensive to God. How is that possible? Well, if you were here to study with us on Wednesday night, the London Baptist Confession, chapter 16, what we learned as we studied chapter 16 was that the answer is because without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's what Hebrews 11.6 says. And because every good work that we attempt that isn't motivated by faith in God is sinful. That's from Romans chapter 14, verse 23. And so Jesus sends Peter out to preach the gospel. And when Peter does it, it's a good work. 
But when Jesus sent Judas out to preach the gospel, when Judas does it, it's not. It's not a good work. In fact, it was evil because it wasn't motivated, it wasn't driven by faith, and it wasn't driven by the desire to glorify God. His desire was always to glorify Judas himself. Let us think about these things and consider the implications of this deeply, friends, because the truth is that you can be doing all of the right things externally. You can be doing all the things that you're supposed to do, like go to church, praying. You can even fast. You can even study your Bible every day. It's entirely uh, possible for a person to do all of those things and yet be doing evil works because your heart is still far away from God as you do these things. And you're not doing it for the glory of God. You're doing it for the glory of self or for your own comfort or for some benefit for yourself. That is a hypocritical faith, a faith that does not save. And how do we know that this is possible? Because that's the kind of faith and that's the kind of walk that we see in Judas. For three years, what he did was for the glory of Judas. Judas didn't have Jesus as his Lord and Savior because he never loved or believed in Jesus. But Peter did. And that made all of the difference. Friends, we too need Jesus as Lord and Savior. If he's not, what are you waiting for? Because tomorrow is never guaranteed. But if Peter's motivation was correct, here's what we might be left wondering. If Peter is doing all this for the right reasons, out of faith and out of a desire to to glorify God, if Peter's doing these things all for the right reason, then how in the world does he fall into such incredible sin that he would deny Jesus not only one time. It's one thing to deny him one time and catch yourself and be like, what am I doing? But three times. How did he fall into such incredible sin? And make no mistake about it, Peter's sin of a threefold denial of Jesus was an incredible and heinous sin. And so to answer this question, let me start by saying that just like with Judas's sin, Peter's sin didn't just pop up out of nowhere. It didn't just like spring up in a vacuum with no context and and no history. He had been working his way up to this point for some time because throughout the years of walking by Jesus' side, one thing that we see about Peter over and over and over again was that he was a brash and prideful man. So prideful that he often attempted to correct Jesus or to rebuke Jesus. How foolish do you have to be to do that? Is there a time, apart from this, uh, this where, where he denies Jesus three times, is there a time that Peter's pride really gets the best of him in a terrible and tragic way? How about when Peter famously makes his profession of faith in Christ? Jesus asks them, you know, who, who do the people say that I am? And they, oh, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say this and that. And Jesus says, what do you think? 
And Peter famously blurts out, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Bingo. And Jesus responds by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then only a few verses later, we read, from that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Does that sound familiar? It's almost exactly like what's happening here in John chapter 13. It's very similar to what happened on the night of Christ's betrayal here in our passage in John. And what did Jesus say back to Peter when Peter tried to talk Jesus out of doing what he had been sent to do? He said rather famously, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. How did Peter go from, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, to being called Satan in, in under 10 seconds, basically? How did he do that? His pride. His pride. Same thing as happened here in our passage in John. So we see that Peter has a history. That he's been working his way up to this point where his pride is an issue for him. Where he exalts his ideas over God's. He's been doing this now for some time. It's very, very rare that a Christian falls into a really heinous, really big sin just out of nowhere. Rather, this is a problem with Peter that has been festering and working up and building up for some time, slowly and subtly, very subtly gaining momentum in his life. It's going to have to reach a point where it breaks Peter. So, the first reason Peter failed and fell into sin here was because of his own ignorant pride. He was always quick to speak, and slow to listen, even to Jesus, when He should have been slow to speak and quick to listen. But notice that Peter seems to have completely missed a couple verses there. Missed the the new commandment that Jesus gave the disciples. Look back at what Jesus had said in the verses leading us up to this point. He starts by saying, where I am going, you cannot go. And he's referring to the cross there. Then Jesus gives the disciples the new commandment that they love one another even as He has loved them. And so then Peter interrupts and takes us back three whole verses. He just glossed over what was in between. He was speaking when He should have been listening. Given that Jesus was referring to His journey to the cross, Peter's question reveals just an incredible ignorance given that Jesus had explained so, so many times why He was going to Jerusalem and what was going to take place when He did go to Jerusalem but would be raised three days later. We saw that in in the passage from Matthew chapter 16 that we just looked at uh, in, in Peter's famous confession of Christ. But we also saw it in the previous chapter here in John. In John chapter 12, verse 33, where Jesus was telling the disciples the kind of death that He was about to die. 
A.W. Pink notes this of, of Peter's ignorance. Even after being told dozens of times by Jesus what was going to happen. Pink writes this, he says, quote, This illustrates the fact that men may receive much religious instruction and yet take in very little of it, the more so when it clashes with their preconceptions. End quote. And Peter had a lot of preconceptions. Peter had a lot of preconceived notions about what Jesus was going to do that didn't square with what Jesus was teaching him. And so Peter, instead of yielding himself to what Jesus was very clearly, very plainly saying, Peter stuck with his own preconceived notions over what Jesus had taught him. Friends, pride will do exactly that. Pride will do exactly that. It will elevate and exalt your own feelings, your own opinions, your own experiences, your own preconceived notions over what God clearly reveals in His Word. That's what pride does. It makes reading and studying the Bible a challenge because when we read the Bible, we have to put those preconceived notions aside and let the Bible speak for itself. That's what exegesis is. That's what we're trying to do when we come to the Bible. But Peter, Peter was full of ignorant pride. Make no mistake about it, by the way. This happens all the time to people today. Their preconceived notions, their pride gets in the way of them understanding what the Scriptures say. It's why you can still have two Christians read the exact same Bible, hear the exact same sermon, and yet one will continue to hold on to an erroneous understanding of a passage while the other doesn't. Why the difference? Well, it's often just as simple as preconceived notions and and presuppositions getting in the way. This is why we have to be very slow to speak and slow to anger, as James instructs us in his epistle. But what ignorance Peter had of what was about to happen to Jesus is revealed by him saying to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. See, in Peter's pride, he's convinced that Jesus needs him, needs Peter to be his Savior, to be Jesus' Savior. A little less on that Savior. Peter thinks that Jesus needs Peter to lay down his life for Jesus when the truth is that it was Peter who needed Jesus to lay Jesus' life down for Peter. Peter doesn't take Jesus seriously. When Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot go. In Peter's mind, he's thinking, why not? Watch me. I I, I can do it. Watch me. Ignorant pride. But Peter's ignorance of what Jesus must do is caused by a far worse ignorance. And that is an ignorance of himself. A lacking of self-awareness. He displays an amazingly low sense of self-awareness here. As Pink notes in his commentary, quote, Peter knew and really loved the Lord, but how little he as yet knew himself. End quote. That's a dangerous place to be. See, in, in, in Peter's mind, he's thinking, I, I love Jesus, uh, and, and who here is braver than me? Who here is stronger 
than I am? Who here is more bold or courageous than I am? Little did Peter know that these strengths were strengths in the flesh. And truth be told, they might have been his greatest qualities, his strongest qualities, but as these events unfold, his confidence in these strengths will be revealed to be his greatest weakness. Peter could not go to the cross with Jesus. Peter couldn't do what only Jesus was capable of doing. And that is laying down his life as a substitutionary atonement for sin on behalf of all of his sheep. Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus was qualified for this work because only Jesus had no sin. Only Jesus could do this work and thus He had to do it alone without Peter. Friends, Peter, just like you and and just like me and just like everybody else, Peter was a sinner who could not even sufficiently atone for his own sin, much less die in the place of, of other sinners. Just like everyone else, Peter needed Jesus to die for him. And so do you. And so do I. Peter's weakness, Jesus foretells, would be revealed in his own inability and his own unwillingness to profess his relationship to Christ. And not only in this threefold denial, but a threefold denial in the interrogation of a little girl. This big burly man, there's the word I was looking for earlier, this big burly man would melt like an ice cube on a 110 degree day in the sun in front of this young girl who puts him on the spot. It's almost comical, isn't it? It would be comical if it wasn't so tragic, if it wasn't so humiliating for him, if it wasn't so humbling for him. And that, friends, that's what Peter needs, isn't it? He needs to be humbled. He needs to learn to put his pride to death because he doesn't know how to be humble at this point. He's filled with pride. And you can't be filled with pride and filled with humility at the same time. But here's the question. Can God cause the proudest sinner to be humble? Yes. Yes, He can. And that's the exact virtue that God will instill in Peter in the lesson that he's going to learn in his threefold denial of Christ. Luke tells us that Peter said this right after arguing along with the other disciples about which one of them was the greatest. So, so Jesus tells the disciples in Luke that he was about to be betrayed. And then we read this in Luke chapter 22, verse 23. He writes, quote, and they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And then we read in verse 24, And there arose also among them a dispute as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. The timing of this. They're all brash. They're all prideful. They're all foolish. Mark tells us that in the midst of all of this discussion about who's the greatest disciple, Peter would proudly boast this. Mark chapter 14, verse 29. Peter says, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. 
And then it was in the next verse, verse 30, that Jesus predicted Peter's denial. So another quality that would cause Peter to fall into such a grievous sin was his overconfidence in himself. This confidence in himself, in his flesh, would be exposed by Satan as Peter's greatest weakness. So the first reason that Peter fell was that he was ignorant of what Jesus was going to do and why Jesus alone was qualified to do it. The second reason that Peter fell into this sin was because he was ignorant about his own shortcomings, his own weaknesses. Third, Peter was overconfident in his flesh. He he thought that Jesus needed him. He didn't understand as well as he needed to how desperately he needed Jesus. He would, as a result of how this would play out. He would understand this. But at this point, he's not there yet. Listen very closely, friends. If there is one piece of advice that I can give you in how to avoid falling into deep, heinous sin, it's this. Know that in your flesh, you're capable of doing so. Know that in your flesh, there is no depth that that your flesh cannot take you to. There is no sin that you are incapable of committing when you put too much confidence in the flesh. Knowing that it's possible not only for you to sin, but to sin in a tragic and humiliating way, that's the first step to avoiding a fall into sin. And if you think, if you convince yourself that you can't fall into an enormous sin or or, or this kind of sin, you're already halfway there. You're already halfway there. Like Peter, we're all prone to wander. In the words of J.C. Ryle, quote, there is an amount of weakness in all of our hearts of which we have no adequate conception and that we never know how far we might fall if we were tempted. End quote. Being aware of that is the place to start avoiding a terrible fall into sin. Know that it is entirely within your ability to fall, and to fall badly. Therefore, put no confidence in your flesh. Rather, place all of your confidence humbly in Christ. Kill your pride and walk humbly with the Lord. I have very real, very deep and real concerns about any Christian who says things like, real Christians would never commit this sin or that sin. Oh, really? Because that's exactly what Peter would have thought about himself. Can a real Christian deny Jesus? What would Peter's answer have been at this point in this passage? Uh, He would have surely said something like, absolutely not. I wouldn't deny Jesus. And yet he would. He would. It was possible for him to. So it's very important for us to avoid allowing pride to cause such ignorance of ourselves and such low levels of self-awareness. So then we must ask, how do we gain self-awareness? One way is through regular, humble self-examination. 
What do you see within yourself? What do you feel? What do you really believe? And what really motivates you to do the things that you do? But you have to take it a step further. That's what a, those are questions that a psychologist would ask you and they'd stop right there. But as Christians, we have to take it further than that, way beyond that. And we must measure what we discover upon self-examination against what God's Word reveals. What do I truly believe about Jesus? What really motivates me? Okay, I've got my answers. Now what does Scripture say? Do I need to repent? So we're taking it way further. And upon this honest self-examination, when held up to God's holy, inerrant, infallible, inspired Word, it will always make us aware of areas where we fall short and where we are most vulnerable. It will always leave us humble if we're being honest with our self-examination. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says this. It says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. How do we do that? How do we watch over our heart with all diligence? Through humble, regular self-examination in light of Scripture. The Christian strength lies in the Lord not, not in Himself. We must therefore humble ourselves and put our confidence entirely in Christ rather than in ourselves, rather than in the flesh. Luke tells us that shortly after Jesus predicts Peter's failure, he adds in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have returned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter needed to learn, and he would have to learn the hard way. What he would later write in his own epistle that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know what? Peter's writing from experience there. He's writing from his own personal experience. That's exactly what was happening that night. Satan was prowling around like a lion, asking to sift Peter, demanding to sift Peter. And even with all of his incredible manly strength. He was not strong enough. He was not brash enough. He was not determined enough in the flesh to do battle with the enemy of his soul. And friends, neither am I and neither are you. The sooner we realize the truth of this, the sooner we will abandon self-confidence and will instead put our confidence entirely in Christ. The sooner we do that, the sooner we put our confidence entirely in Christ instead of in the flesh, the sooner we will learn His power. So why did the devil not consume Peter entirely? There's only one answer. It's because Jesus prayed for Peter. Yes, it is that simple. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I, Jesus, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
What a wonderful thing that is to read. Ultimately, the reason that Peter would not be entirely devoured or completely consumed by Satan is because Jesus would not allow Satan to do so. He would allow Peter to be sifted like wheat, but only insofar as it worked for Peter's good and for God's glory. We can never boast of how great or how unshakable our faith is because even our faith isn't of ourselves. It's a gift from God. Peter wasn't spared because of the strength of his faith or the size of his faith. He was saved because of the strength and the unthwartable power of Christ to hold on to Peter. And in the same way, we aren't saved because of the size of our faith or the depth of our faith or because of the grip we have on Jesus. We are saved because of the grip that He has on us. And we have seen that theme throughout the study of John's Gospel. That Jesus has clearly declared this and made provision for all Christians throughout the ages to hold us fast until the end. To persevere, even in difficult times. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. In John chapter 6, verses 39 to 40, Jesus said, This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Then Jesus says in chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is found throughout John's Gospel. The idea is that for somebody who has truly believed, they will persevere. If they sin, if they fall into sin, they will be restored. Friends, if you, when you consider a, a, a story like this, what happened with Peter in his threefold denial of Jesus, if that makes you feel worried about whether or not you would deny Jesus if your life depended on it someday... Let me tell you how to address that question, that concern. It's to examine yourself humbly in light of Scripture in order to determine whether or not you are a Judas or a Peter today, right now. And make no mistake about it, you are one or the other. The question to ask ourselves is right now, Do I love Jesus? Right now, do I savingly trust Jesus? Right now, do I submit willfully and joyfully to what He instructs in His Word? Because if Judas had asked himself these questions, his honest answer to these questions would have been no across the board. While Peter's answers would have been yes. Or at least, I'm striving for that across the board. Friends, you will sin. In in varying degrees, you will sin. We all do. We are all prone to wander. But here's what you must know. No matter how badly you sin, 
If you have truly and savingly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been adopted by God, by grace, through faith in Christ alone. And as such, Jesus Himself has already made provision for your faith to endure. He has already made provision for your repentance and restoration to be made. Just as Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail, the Scriptures assure us that Jesus is today interceding for us in prayer. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That word intercedes is in the present ongoing tense. So it applies even to us today. His ministry in praying for us continues. And if Jesus is praying on our behalf, we can know that His prayers are shielding us and preventing us from having our faith fail completely. They are preventing us from being entirely consumed by the enemy of our souls. Satan couldn't overcome Jesus' intercessory prayers, even though he could overcome Peter's strength, just like he can overcome ours. But he cannot overcome Jesus' intercessory prayer. Like all of us, friends, Peter was prone to wander. In his own strength, he would Despite his good intentions, despite every good intention, Peter did not have the strength on his own to remain faithful to Christ. And friends, on our own, neither do we. Therefore, examine yourselves humbly in the light of Scripture. And you'll see that it's true. You'll see that it's true that on your own, and the power that you have on your own, your faith will not stand. But Peter's failure shouldn't discourage us. Rather, it should encourage us. It should discourage us from prideful ignorance and, and confidence in the flesh, but it should encourage us. It should cause us to fall to our knees in humble prayer, begging Christ to hold us fast when we fear that our faith will fail. Begging that the Spirit will teach us to put no confidence in the flesh. And begging that the Spirit would teach us, indeed that He would empower us or even cause us to humble ourselves before the Lord and to put our confidence entirely in Christ rather than in ourselves. Because the Christian's strength lies in the Lord and not in Himself. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the way that Your Word instructs us convicts us, and humbles us. Teach us, O oh Lord, to be humble spirits, uh, humble uh, in spirit. 
Teach us, O Lord, to put to death our prideful tendencies, our prideful confidence in the flesh. Teach us, O Lord, to glorify Christ in this way. That in our weakness, His strength may be made known for His glory. And in His name we pray. Amen.